Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Armaments Race by Arthur C. Clarke. This is first published in Adventure, April 1954. It's an American men's magazine. They had a uh, at least one other story of uh, this series, which is called uh, Tales of the White Heart, when it gets collected as a book. Um, they say it is the first uh, of a... I'll just read the intro there. It says, This is the first of a series of stories told by one of the members of that fabulous London pub, The White Heart. And heart is H-A-R-T, as in a kind of deer. Uh, where science fiction... Ah, where science and fiction do not necessarily conflict, but sometimes even manage to go hand in hand. So um, it's a little bit misleading uh, there because it is their first in a series, but it's not the first that was published or written. Um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke had been working on this sort of series, if we want to call it that, uh, from the late 40s. And uh, I think... I think the final publication for the actual book of collected stories is like 1970. But they do have another one. And you don't really need to read them in any order. They're not published in the order that they were um, originally published in. So um, there's that. Um, but I, I just wanted to expand a little bit on uh, club stories. I think we may have done a club story um, earlier in this podcast. It's, it's so many, Eric. Um, but, uh, I wanted to just point to some and, uh, then when we're listening to the story, which I believe you will read for us, um, we can sort of have that in our back pocket for pulling out later. So, uh, club stories are stories told in a club setting or a setting like a club. Um, a good example would be, uh, the time machine where the narrative is actually being told to a group of men, um, I, I believe they're having supper. They're not actually in a club, but the the whole narrative is framed by this setting of a bunch of people around a table listening to a story. And this is a long tradition in uh, science fiction and uh, related genres. So uh, Isaac Asimov has one series that he invited other people to contribute to, uh, The Black Widower's Club, which is based on a real... Uh, club that they kind of had themselves. A bunch of writers get together and tell each other stories. Uh, the Runagates Club, that's uh, one of the biggest ones if we think of club stories. This is a John Buchan having his various characters like Richard Hannay from The 39 Steps telling stories, uh, tall tales around uh, a club uh, room. Callahan's Cross Time Saloon, a uh, very famous series by Spider Robinson is that. And uh, <laughs> my friend uh, Julie Hoverson, she has a series called uh, Lovecraft 5 in which various Lovecraftian characters uh, tell stories from Lovecraft's works, but as if they were true stories. This tradition can be thought to go back um, all the way to Canterbury Tales, which is a bunch of stories about a people... They're not in a club, but a bunch of people on the road telling each other stories. Or 
there's a, novels like Dan Simmons' uh, Hyperion, which is a bunch of people on a pilgrimage telling each other stories. My favorite of all of these is uh, Larry Niven's The Draco Tavern, which is much more explicitly hard SF. The one we're going to look at today is uh, uh, some somebody somewhere on the internet described these this style, and this is probably the most predominant style, fantasy lubricated satire. <laughs> so these are stories of, uh, of the unreal but supposedly real. And uh, the idea of lubricated is everybody at these uh, clubs is getting drunk and telling tall, tall or fishy tales. I would make to addenda to that <clears throat> lovely introduction of a, a genre that you name, both stable in the club and mobile in uh, the Decameron and uh, mm -hmm. Canterbury Tales. Um, and that is uh, in this particular that is. It goes back further. Um, the the word symposium mm -hmm. <clears throat> means a gathering or a drinking party. Mm -hmm. And so Plato's symposium, one of the Socratic dialogues that Plato writes, is perhaps the first of these mm -hmm. club tales, as you would have it. Um, the second is um, that... Not everybody in this story is lubricated, Indeed. as we will hear. Indeed. One of them uh, can take it or leave it and almost always leaves it. Um, indeed, he does. Um, the, the story is full of so many um, references to the way the world was working in 1954 when it was published that I'll just throw out this one before reading it and leave the others to be discovered as the as as we go over it again um, pineapple which is the juice that the one non-drinker drinks pineapple is slang for a hand grenade right <laughs> okay armaments race As I've remarked on previous occasions, no one has ever succeeded in pinning down Harry Purvis, prize raconteur of the White Heart, for any length of time. Of his scientific knowledge, there can be no doubt. But where did he pick it up? And what justification is there for the terms of familiarity with which he speaks of so many fellows of the Royal Society? There are, it must be admitted, many who do not believe a single word he says. That, I feel, is going a little too far, as I recently remarked somewhat forcibly to John Christopher. John is one of the most promising young novelists for at least 10 years. During that time, he has produced several books which I consider very well done, but hardly worth doing. You're always gunning for Harry, I said, but you must admit that he provides entertainment, and that's more than most of us can say. If you're being personal, retorted John, still rankling over the fact that some perfectly serious stories had just been rejected by an American editor on the grounds that they hadn't made him laugh, step outside and say that again. He glanced through the window, noticing that it was still snowing hard, and hastily added, not today, then, but maybe sometime in the summer if we're both on the Wednesday that catches it. Have another of your favorite shots of straight pineapple juice? Thanks, I said. One day I'll ask for a gin with it just to shake you up. I think I must be the only guy in the white heart who can take it or leave it and leaves it. 
That was as far as the conversation got because the subject of the discussion then arrived. Normally, this would merely have added fuel to the controversy, but as Harry had a stranger with him, we decided to be polite little boys. Hello, folks, said Harry. Meet my friend, Solly Blumberg, best special effects man in Hollywood. Let's be accurate, Harry, said Mr. Blumberg, sadly, in a voice that should have belonged to a whipped spaniel. Not in Hollywood, out of Hollywood. Harry waved the correction aside. All the better for you. Saul's come over to apply his talents to the British film industry. There is a British film industry, said Solly anxiously. No one seemed very sure around the studio. Sure there is. It's in a very flourishing condition, too. The government piles on an entertainment tax that drives it to bankruptcy, then keeps it alive with whacking big grants. That's the way we do things in this country. Hey, Drew, where's the visitor's book? And double for both of us. Solly's had a terrible time. I cannot say that apart from this hang-dog look, Mr. Blumberg had the appearance of a man who had suffered extreme hardships. He was neatly dressed in a Hart Schaffner and Mark suit and the points of his shirt collar buttoned down somewhere around the middle of his chest. That was thoughtful of them as they thus concealed things, but not enough of his tie. I wondered what the trouble was. Not un-American activities again, I prayed. That would trigger off our pet communist who at the moment was peaceably studying a chessboard. We all made sympathetic noises and John said rather pointedly, maybe it will help to get it off your chest. It will be such a change to hear someone talking around here. Don't be so modest, John, cut in Harry promptly. I'm not tired of hearing you yet, but I doubt if Solly feels much like going through it again, do you, old man? No, said Blumberg. You tell them. I knew it would come to that, sighed John in my ear. Where shall I begin? asked Harry. The time Phoebe Ross came to interview anywhere but there, shuddered Solly. It really started when we were making the first Captain Zoom serial. Captain Zoom, said someone ominously. Those are two very rude words in this place. Don't say you were responsible for that unspeakable rubbish. Now, boys, put in Harry in his best oil on troubled waters voice. Don't be too harsh. We can't be too harsh. We can't apply our own high standards of criticism to everything. And people have got to earn a living. Besides, millions of kids like Captain Zoom. Surely you wouldn't want to break their little hearts. And so near Christmas, too. If they really like Captain Zoom, I'd rather break their little necks. Such unseasonable sentiments. I really must apologize for some of my compatriots, Solly. Let's see. What was the name of the first serial? Captain Zoom and the Menace from Mars. Ah, yes, that's right. Incidentally, I wonder why we always are menaced by Mars. I suppose that man well started it. One day we may have a big interplanetary libel suit on our hands, unless we can prove that the Martians have been equally rude about us. I'm very glad to say that I never saw Menace of Mars, but we are not concerned with the story, such as it was. That was written by three men in a bar on Wilshire Boulevard. No one is sure whether the Menace came out the way it did because the scriptwriters were drunk or whether they had to keep drunk in order to face the Menace. If that's confusing, don't bother. All that Solly was concerned with were the special effects that the director demanded. First of all, he had to build Mars. 
To do this, he spent half an hour with the conquest of space and then emerged with a sketch which Carpenter's turned into an overripe orange floating in nothingness with an improbable number of stars around it. That was easy. The Martian cities weren't so simple. You try and think of completely alien architecture that still makes sense. I doubt if it's possible. If it will work at all, someone's already used it here on Earth. What the studio finally built was vaguely Byzantine with touches of Frank Lloyd Wright. The fact that none of the doors led anywhere didn't really matter as long as there was enough room on the sets for the sword play and general acrobatics that the script demanded. Yes, sword play. Here was a civilization which had atomic power, death rays, spaceships, television, and such modern conveniences, but when it came to a fight between Captain Zoom and the evil Emperor Klug, the clock went back a couple of centuries. A lot of soldiers stood around holding deadly-looking ray guns, but they never did anything with them. Well, hardly ever. Sometimes a shower of sparks would chase Captain Zoom and singe his pants, but that was all. I suppose that as the rays couldn't very well move faster than light, he could always outrun them. Still, those ornamental ray guns gave everyone quite a few headaches. It's funny how Hollywood will spend endless trouble on some minute detail in a film which is complete rubbish. The director of Captain Zoom had a thing about ray guns. Solly designed the Mark I that looked like a cross between a bazooka and a blunderbuss. He was quite satisfied with it, and so was the director. For about a day. And then the great man came raging into the studio, carrying a revolting creation of purple plastic covered with knobs and lenses and levers. Look at this, Solly. He puffed Junior, got it down to the supermarket there, being given away with packets of crunch. Collect 10 box tops and get one. Hell, they're better than ours. He pressed a lever and a thin stream of water shot across the set and disappeared behind Captain Zoom's spaceship, where it promptly extinguished a cigarette that had no right to be burning there. An angry stagehand emerged through the airlock, saw who it was, had drenched him, and swiftly retreated. Solly examined the ray gun with annoyance, and yet with an expert's discrimination. Yet, it was certainly much more impressive than anything he'd put out. He retired into his office and promised to see what he could do about it. The Mark II had everything built into it, including a television screen. If Captain Zoom was suddenly confronted by a charging hickaderm, all he had to do was to switch on the set, wait for the tubes to warm up, check the channel selector, adjust the fine-tuning, touch up the focus, twiddle with the line and frame holes, and then press the trigger. He was, fortunately, a man of unbelievably swift reactions. The director was impressed, and the Mark II went into production. A slightly different model, the Mark IIa, was built for the Emperor Klug's diabolical cohorts. It would never do, of course, if both sides had the same weapon. I told you that pandemic productions were sticklers for accuracy. All went well until the first rushes, and even beyond. While the cast was acting, if you can use that word, they had to point the guns and press the triggers as if something was really happening. The sparks and flashes, however, were put on the negative later by two little men in a dark room about as well guarded as Fort Knox. They did a good job, but after a while, the producer again felt twinges in his overdeveloped artistic conscience. Solly, he said toying with the plastic horror which had reached Junior by courtesy of Crunch, the succulent cereal, not a burp in a barrel. Solly, I still want a gun that does something. 
Sully ducked in time, so the jet went over his head and baptized a photograph of Letitia Parsons. You're not going to start shooting all over again, he wailed. No, replied the producer with obvious reluctance. We'll have to use what we've got, but it looks faked somehow. He ruffled through the script on his desk, then brightened up. Now, next we start on episode 54, Slaves of the Slugmen. Well, the Slugmen got to have guns, so what I'd like you to do is this. The Mark III gave Solly a lot of trouble. I haven't missed out one yet, have I? Good. Not only had it to be a completely new design, but as you'll have gathered, it had to do something. This was a challenge to Solly's ingenuity, however. If I may borrow from Professor Toynbee, it was a challenge that evoked the appropriate response. Some high-powered engineering went into the Mark III. Luckily, Solly knew an ingenious technician who'd helped him out on similar occasions before, and he was really the man behind it. The principle was to use a jet of air produced by a small but extremely powerful electric fan and then to spray finely divided powder into it. When the thing was adjusted correctly, it shot out a most impressive beam and made a still more impressive noise. The actors were so scared of it that their performances became most realistic. The producer was delighted for a full three days. Then a dreadful doubt assailed him. Solly, he said, those damn guns are too good. The slug man can beat the pants off Captain Zoom. We'll have to give him something better. It was at this point that Solly realized what had happened. He had become involved in an armaments race. Let's see. This brings us to the Mark IV, doesn't it? How did that work? Oh, yes, I remember. It was a glorified oxyacetylene burner with various chemicals injected into it to produce the most beautiful flames. I should have mentioned that from episode 50, Doom on Dimos, the studio had switched over from black and white to murky color, and great possibilities were thus opened up. By squirting copper or strontium or barium into the jet, you could get any color you wanted. If you think that by this time the producer was satisfied, you don't know Hollywood. Some cynics may still laugh when the motto Ars Gracia Artis flashes on the screen, but this attitude I submit is not in accordance with the facts. What would such old fossils as Michelangelo, Rembrandt, or Titian have spent so much time, effort, and money on the quest for perfection as did pandemic productions? I think not. I don't pretend to remember all the marks that Solly and his ingenious engineer friend produced during the course of the serial. There was one that shot out a stream of colored smoke rings. There was the high-frequency generator that produced enormous but quite harmless sparks. There was a particularly ingenious curved beam produced by a jet of water with light reflected along inside it, which looked most spectacular in the dark. And finally, there was the Mark 12. Mark 13, said Mr. Blumberg. Of course, how stupid of me. What other number could it have been? The Mark 13 was not actually a portable weapon, though some of the others were portable only by a considerable stretch of the imagination. It was the diabolical device to be installed on Phobos in order to subjugate Earth. Though Solly had explained them to me once, the scientific principles involved escape my simple mind. However, who am I to match my brains against the intellects responsible for Captain Zoom? I can only report what the 
the ray was supposed to do, not how it did it. It was to start a chain reaction in the atmosphere of our unfortunate planet, making the nitrogen and the oxygen in the air combine with deleterious effects to terrestrial life. I'm not sure whether to be sorry or glad that Solly left all the details of the fabulous Mark 13 to his talented assistant, though I've questioned him at some length. All he can tell me is that the thing was about six feet high and looked like a cross between the 200-inch telescope and an aircraft gun. That's not very helpful, is it? He says also that there were a lot of radio tubes in the brute, as well as a thundering great magnet, and it was definitely supposed to produce a harmless but impressive electric arc, which could be distorted into all sorts of interesting shapes by the magnet. That was what the inventor said, and despite everything, there is still no reason to disbelieve him. By one of those mischances that later turns out to be providential, Solly wasn't at the studio when they tried out the Mark 13. To his great annoyance, he had to be down in Mexico that day and wasn't that lucky for you, Solly. He was expecting a long-distance call from one of his friends in the afternoon, but when it came through, it wasn't at all the kind of message he'd anticipated. The Mark 13 had been, to put it mildly, a success. No one knew exactly what had happened, but by a miracle, no lives had been lost, and the fire department had been able to save the adjoining studios. It was incredible, yet the facts were beyond dispute. The Mark 13 was supposed to be a phony death ray, and it had turned out to be a real one. Something had emerged from the projector and gone through the studio wall as if it weren't there. Indeed, a moment later, it wasn't. There was just a great big hole beginning to smolder around the edges, and then the roof fell in. Unless Solly could convince the FBI that it was all a mistake, he'd better stay the other side of the border. Even now, the Pentagon and the Atomic Energy Commission were converging on the wreckage. What would you have done in Solly's shoes? He was innocent, but how could he prove it? Perhaps he would have gone back to face the music if he hadn't remembered that he'd once hired a man who campaigned for Henry Wallace back in 48. That might take some explaining away. Besides, Solly was a little off Captain Zoom. So here he is. Anyone know of a British film company that might have an opening for him? But historical films only, please. He won't touch anything more up-to-date than crossbows. <laughs> uh, so it's a kind of a shaggy dog story um, in a certain sense, as you would expect at these uh, club stories. Um, I think uh, the fact that it's got right, right called out in the story, the House on American Activities thing <laughs> is significant. But uh, before we go there, I just want to... I want to point out that uh, this Captain Zoom, obviously not a real one, but Buck Rogers sure was, right? And that was a long-running serial. There's a lot of serials that this could be referring to. The fact that uh, it talks about going from black and white to murky color. Um, there is a kind of an armaments race always on in the film industry, going from silent to talkies, black and white to what's called here murky color. But 3D is a technology... Uh, kind of weapon against the audience and other studios that they revive every once in a while to try and uh, increase their market share. Um, but there, there's another thing going on in here too, which is pretty interesting. Um, I, I, there's a 
everybody knows about the Internet Movie Database. There's another one called the Internet Firearms Database. And this is people who uh, spot the weapons used in movies and say, oh, this is that. This is that obscure weapon. This is that. Uh, the movie industry and the television industry is very interested in having these <laughs> prop weapons, on-screen weapons that they c- can use to attract the audience and make the cop a specific... Uh, powerful character by giving him the most powerful handgun in the world or what have you. Um, And it's usually not the case that these things end up uh, becoming industry standards, but there's some, some sort of strange edge cases. And I want to point out that there's a movie called uh, Logan's run in the seventies that had obviously somebody like the producer of captain zoom who said we need our space guns to be more interesting and the the weapons they give to the main character in that movie are like a prop that does exactly one of the things that's going on in these Mark 6 weapons and Mark 7 and all that it it shoots flames out of the end of the gun and adds various impurities to give it a color um and it's surprising on screen when you see it you say oh that's not a that's not a conventional weapon. It's like the first time you see a uh, Star Wars lightsaber. You say, how did they do that? Right? So it captures your imagination. Um, in uh, the 1986 movie uh, Aliens, all these futuristic weapons are actually uh, World War II era weapons, MG-42s uh, for these giant machine guns and uh, uh, Thompson submachine guns for you know the, the regular hero weapons. And what's interesting is they're they're the same old technology, but they've got new cladding on them. You know, they have a bullet counter on the side. Or in the case of the MG42, which is an incredibly giant uh, World War II Nazi machine gun, they attach Steadicam uh, equipment so that a single person could operate it standing up. This is a weapon that's designed to be laid down on the ground and operated by two people. But if you attach a Steadicam harness to an actor and have them carry around this giant machine gun from World War II, they can carry around a giant machine gun from World War II. It's crazy. Um, so this, uh, this industry that is being made fun of here is very real in a certain sense. The only unreal section is that we suddenly can blow through walls accidentally by inventing amazing technologies. Um, One other uh, sort of side story on this, um, which struck me funny, is that in the 1980s, uh, they started, uh, there was a specific guy who invented something called the Super Soaker, which was a very powerful uh, squirt gun. I have a few myself. These uh, use air pressure to uh, hold a bladder full of uh, water and a bladder full of air and combine them together in a way that your finger and a a simple spring and a trigger cannot project water. These were eventually, and very commonly, used um, as props in album covers and movies where they just spray paint it to make it look like a futuristic gun and not a super soaker. (laughs) And it becomes a prop weapon like you would see in a movie like Captain Zoom or a serial like Captain Zoom. So those are my initial thoughts on this very silly story. I, I, I like – I think they're valid. <laughs> I think they're useful. I think that uh, that Clark um, 
is a fascinating character in a lot of ways, a figure in the history of science fiction. Um, in some ways, uh, he really plugs into myth very well. We have stories like The City and the Stars mm-hmm. of his that, that or Childhood's End that really resonate in ways that go beyond and, in fact, contradict hard science. But he actually knows a lot about hard science, too. He doesn't reconcile them very well. And sometimes, frankly, he works too fast. Um, This story, as you say, a silly little story. It is silly because the punchline, you know, that Solly won't work, you know, later than crossbows really doesn't wrap up anything. The fact that the arms race was real in 1954, Mm. that the House on American Activities, there are all sorts of really significant issues. The fact that the one refugee from Hollywood has an obviously Jewish name. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of things here. Henry Wallace uh, mm-hmm. was the vice president for uh, FDR, but then ran as a progressive that is close to being a communist mm-hmm. um, in 48. There's all sorts of stuff that's here mm-hmm. and nothing is done with it. Yep. The reason I say he's going too fast is if you read with some care – You'll notice that the uh, the person from Pandemic Productions who was so demanding and driving this arms race is the director the first two times he's mentioned. And then presumably he's the very same person, but he's the producer the mm-hmm. next times he's mentioned. And everyone who knows anything about how films are created in Hollywood knows that the director and the producer are two distinct roles. Mm-hmm. Every now and then they're occupied by the same person, but rarely, very, very rarely. The story is full of all kinds of fun stuff. And yet, in fact, today, Hollywood is a faster driver of the development of computer technology, Mm. software, and so on, than the Defense Department. The Defense Department piggybacks on what Hollywood does more often than the reverse foreseeing the potency of entertainment in driving technological change. Mm. This story has a, a kernel of insight that's part of what makes Arthur C. Clarke such an extraordinary writer. Mm. On the one hand, he gets the science right in a truly predictive way. He was, for instance, the first person to write, and he published this in a scientific journal, about the possibilities of geostationary Communication satellites. Mm-hmm. He invented them. Mm-hmm. And yet he also writes about myth. And and he he just he gets it. So here we have, as you said when we began, a club story, a whole bunch of men who can think of nothing better to do than to get together and tell each other tales. If you've read more of Clark, you'll realize why this is so important. There are no women. There's really nothing to do. And what we're concerned with is finding an appropriate steady state relationship in which a bunch of men can contemplate their narratives (laughs) and feel good together. Wow. And that happens here. Mm -hmm. In other words, for Clark, and I've read the whole of the Tales of the Right Heart, as I'm sure you have as well, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com 
and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.